Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Monday, November 8th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, another even more promising antiviral pill for COVID-19 has been announced, this time from Pfizer. Plus, why adults aren't as good at learning new things as kids are. But is that such a bad thing? And the messy legacy of both Emily Dickinson and her favorite cake recipe. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So on Thursday, the United Kingdom became the first country to authorize use of Merck's COVID-19 pill, and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration is currently reviewing that same one. But now there is another pill on the block. Pfizer announced at the end of last week that their antiviral pill called Paxlovid was so effective that they stopped their trials early. And this is a common technique when results are so undeniably clear, and it was something ordered by an independent group of medical experts. Now, Pfizer says that their pill cuts rates of hospitalization and death by nearly 90% in high-risk adults. The Phase 2-3 study included 775 unvaccinated high-risk adults, some of whom received the Pfizer Paxlovid pill three to five days after showing COVID-19 symptoms. They were given Paxlovid for five days. Those who got the Pfizer pill had an 89% reduction in combined hospitalization and death rates. Overall, of those who got the pill, less than 1% had symptoms severe enough to require hospitalization, and not a single participant in that group died. Dr. Michael Dolston, Pfizer's chief scientific officer, said, quote, We were hoping that we had something extraordinary, but it's rare that you see great drugs come through with almost 90% efficacy and 100% protection for death. End quote. Merck's antiviral pill showed in trials that it cuts rates of hospitalization and death by 50%, which is a lot less than 90% on the surface, but quoting the Associated Press, experts warned against comparing preliminary results because of differences in the studies, including where they were conducted and what types of variants were circulating. End quote. And further on the differences between the two, quoting again, Although Merck's pill is further along in the U.S. regulatory process, Pfizer's drug could benefit from a safety profile that is more familiar to regulators with fewer red flags. While pregnant women were excluded from the Merck trial due to a potential risk of birth defects, Pfizer's drug did not have any similar restrictions. The Merck drug works by interfering with the coronavirus's genetic code, a novel approach to disrupting the virus. Pfizer's drug is part of a decades-old family of of antiviral drugs known as protease inhibitors, which revolutionized the treatment of HIV and hepatitis C. The drugs block a key enzyme which viruses need to multiply in the human body. The drug was first identified during the SARS outbreak originating in Asia during 2003. Last year, company researchers decided to revive the medication and study it for COVID-19, given the similarities between the two coronaviruses. End quote. Both antiviral treatments from Merck and Pfizer, as I've said, are pills. The only other FDA-approved treatments currently have to be given via IV or injection. So having a simple pill that can be taken at home would be a huge boon for accessibility and preventing overcrowding of hospitals. 
Pfizer's antiviral pill was more effective for trial candidates the earlier on they took it, and the company says that it could also be used to cut the chances of adults getting infected after they've been exposed. Pfizer said in a statement, quote, It has demonstrated potent antiviral in vitro activity against circulating variants of concern, as well as other known coronaviruses, suggesting its potential as a therapeutic for multiple types of coronavirus infections, end quote. And once both Merck and Pfizer's pills get approved, if they do, the next step will be distribution. Merck has pledged to give 10 million doses of theirs, now called Legevrio, by the end of the year. Pfizer is hoping to have 180,000 doses by the end of the year, but ramp up to 21 million by mid-2022. And, of course, the equitable distribution around the world, not just supplies being bought up by wealthy nations, will prove the real challenge. In the meantime, experts remind us that the best way to prevent COVID hospitalization and death is to get vaccinated. Have you ever had someone say this to you? You know, maybe you failed at something and you're disillusioned, you don't want to try again, and someone says, how many times did you fall down when you were learning how to walk as a baby? If you'd given up after one or two tries, you would have crawled into this room on your hands and knees. I've never loved that expression. One, it's a bit ableist, but two, when we're kids, especially infants, we don't know enough to be scared or perhaps, more importantly, discerning about things. So of course we keep trying, but as adults, we're more cautious. Psychologists call these learning traps. Alison Gopnik explained it in the Wall Street Journal, quote, When we grown-ups try something new, from oysters to opera, and get a bad result, we usually won't try it again. And that might seem like the most basic kind of intelligence. Even rats stay away from a path that leads to a shock. But it has an important downside. If we quickly conclude that all oysters and operas are indigestible and reject them ever after, we'll never learn that the world is more complicated than that. A stale clam or lame Aida may keep us from ever discovering the delights of a sparkling Belon oyster or a scintillating magic flute. End quote. Quick side note on this article's example of oysters and opera. When I studied abroad in Amsterdam as an undergrad, our professor took us on a field trip to the oldest gay bar in the country, which makes it kind of one of the oldest in the world. And since it was the middle of the day when we students piled into the small, dark bar, hardly anyone was there. Some opera song was blasting on the speakers, though, and this tiny old man was sitting in the middle of the empty bar, shucking oysters into a bowl. And when we entered, he said, Welcome! It's Oysters and Opera Day today. I just always thought that was a great theme and just a kind of surreal moment. I never realized oysters and opera were such a common pairing. But anyways, back to learning traps. Adults are far more susceptible to learning traps. And it makes sense. You know, if you have one bad experience, you'll remember that experience and be worried about it when you encounter something similar in the future, like being scared of air travel after a bad plane experience. Gopnik says this could even be where certain parts of anxiety disorders, phobias, and PTSD come from. Learning traps have long been designed in the lab to study various hypotheses, but one test that's been tough is comparing kids to adults. As Gopnik puts it, they're just so different that it's really hard to compare. 
But she and her colleague, NYU cognitive scientist Emily LeQuinn, designed such a study and recently had the results published in the journal Cognition. Quoting Gopnik in the Wall Street Journal, We gave 64 4- and 5-year-olds and 87 adults a simple game to play. You get to decide whether to put different blocks on a machine. If the machine lights up, you get a star, which translates to a sticker for the kids or a few cents for grown-ups. But if it doesn't light up, you lose twice as much. The point of the game is to figure out which blocks make the machine light up and earn as many stars as you can. It seems easy, but a learning trap is lurking. Suppose you choose a white striped block and you get a star, and then you try a white spotted one and you lose two stars, end quote. Their study found that adults quickly figured out what they thought was a simple rule. Stripes are good, spots are bad. They avoided all spots. But it turned out that only white spots were bad, so when adults avoided black spots, they missed out on a reward. 70% of adults in the trial never figured this out because they didn't even try the black dotted blocks. Kids, meanwhile, just got excited to try anything new, even if they knew it might lose them their beloved stars. As a result, they gathered far more evidence than adults, and most of them figured out the real rule about the dots. But they earned fewer stars. Quoting again, Computer scientists talk about a fundamental trade-off between exploration and exploitation, and learning traps are an excellent example. We grown-ups are often so anxious to exploit that we don't explore, so afraid of losing stars that we miss the chance to learn something new. Children, in contrast, are natural explorers, willing to sacrifice stars for the sake of information. You need both types of thinking to thrive, but we grown-ups might learn something from those insatiably curious kids. End quote. All things in balance, for sure. Because again, I'll say that the eager curiosity driving some kids is only possible because there are world-weary adults around to protect them from harm. You know, some kids do have big fears and hesitations because they have been through traumatic events. We need balances internally and within communities. You know, those willing to dream big and push further, and those who take a second to consider and maybe reel the others in. Learning traps maybe aren't all that bad, in moderation, just like oysters. Over the weekend, the third and final season of Dickinson dropped on Apple TV+, and I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, so no worries, there are not any spoilers ahead, and please don't tweet any at me either. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. Haley Steinfeld plays a young-ish Emily Dickinson struggling with her art and the social pressures of the time, both personally and at large in a nation on the eve of civil war. Though real-life Emily Dickinson was published here and there, she's one of those artists who didn't achieve huge fame until after her death, something she wrote about quite a lot. Nowadays, Dickinson is known as the OG sad girl emo poet, but in her time, she was better known as a bit of an eccentric hermit, albeit one who absolutely crushed it at local baking competitions. Quoting an Atlas Obscura piece about the messy history of one of Dickinson's most well-known recipes, Dickinson spent hours each week making bread and cake for her father's household. She certainly was writing in the kitchen on scraps of paper, says Martha Nell Smith, a Dickinson scholar at the University of Maryland. Some extant Dickinson manuscripts are decorated with food stains, including likely splatters of currant wine, an Emily specialty. Dickinson left several handwritten recipes among her papers, and their line breaks bear the same telltale dashes of her poetry. Meanwhile, the open-ended form of Dickinson's poems sometimes 
sometimes mimics the terseness of a recipe. They're recipes for reading, Smith says, end quote. Now, despite how Dickinson has long been depicted, isolated, chaste, perhaps self-conscious, the last few decades of scholarship have shown another side to the poet, one that is social, at least in terms of vibrant correspondence, if not physically leaving her house too often, and the sensuality and enthusiasm for life that dots her poetry just as often as deep wonderings about death. One of Dickinson's surviving recipes is not one she created herself, but rather one that she baked a lot and became known for in the community. It's a Caribbean Christmas cake called Black Cake. Harvard University owns the original handwritten scrap of paper on which Dickinson jotted down the recipe for a friend. And five years ago, a reference assistant at the library and a new staff member who happened to be a former pastry chef tried making the cake from Dickinson's handwritten recipe. And it went well enough that every year since, they've held an event in December in which people attempt to make the cake and share it all together. They've also adapted it slightly, namely making it smaller. Dickinson's version calls for an enormous two pounds of flour and 19 eggs. The Harvard one pairs it down to eight ounces of flour and just five eggs. The recipe is reprinted in the Atlas Obscura link in the show notes if you want to try it yourself this holiday season, or maybe while you watch the final episodes of Dickinson on Apple TV+. But as you do, you should keep in mind the complicated history of the cake itself. It's traditional in some Caribbean families to have the cake at Christmas time. The labor-intensive dessert evokes similar memories for some as watching parents make countless tamales on Christmas Eve. The cake is a bit like a fruit cake, being filled with raisins, currants, nutmeg, and cinnamon, as well as, in the original version, burnt sugar called browning and rum. Atlas Obscura notes that both the ingredients required for the cake and the recipe for it likely got to Dickinson's white Massachusetts family via the triangular trade, where at some point the browning sugar was swapped for molasses and the rum for brandy. Atlas Obscura reminds us, quote, The elite Dickinson family, like all white Americans, economically benefited from slavery. Their ancestors were early New England colonizers, and their southern enslaver cousins fought for the Confederacy. Emily's congressman Father Edward was not an abolitionist. Dickinson's own letters, meanwhile, contain violently anti-black and anti-Irish statements. Her brother, Austin Dickinson, was part of the xenophobic Know Nothing Party. Conventional histories of Dickinson, as of other white poets, tend to gloss over this complicity. She's removed from this very messy, ugly context and held as this beacon, this symbol of purity, says poet M. Norbusa Philip. But in her essay, Making Black Cake in Combustible Spaces, Philip argues that the very ingredients of black cake, especially the bitter burnt sugar, implore readers to confront these often erased histories and challenge them to imagine more just futures. We have to remember the bitterness, she says. It's what gives the cake the sweetness. And concluding from Atlas Obscura, the black cake recipe helps us understand the aspects of Dickinson's life and poetry, her passion, her queerness, that were literally erased. But it also reminds us of these other erasures, of the people whose unrecognized labor helped make Dickinson the great poet we know today. The messy history of black cake also asks us to challenge the conventional image of Emily Dickinson as a waif in a spotless white dress. It asks us to imagine instead the dress's fabric sticky with molasses, rumpled with the labor of baking and splashed crimson with currant wine. 
It asks us to imagine the indigenous land that grew the dress's cotton, the enslaved black people who were forced to pick it, the immigrant laborers who spun it into fabric, and the Irish laundress who boiled and beat that dress until history could pretend it had always and only been white. End quote. Well, that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.